of glittering delights. And here, host Dandre Leyland. Way back in episode 14 of this show, I looked at the pilot movie and novel for Buck Rogers in the 25th century, the 1979 update of the classic newspaper strip. And I mentioned that one day I would return to the show. Well, today, you lucky people, is that day. If the pulps are described as fiction that focuses more on melodrama and excitement over character... Then, over its first season, Buck Rogers evolved, becoming slightly more serious, thanks to lead actor Gil Gerard's desire that Buck be more than a Burt Reynolds-style wisecracker. This semi-worked. It's to the actor's credit that he wanted the show to be more heavyweight than the flip, overtly smart-ass attitude the character had in the pilot, but it did somewhat clash with the overall pulpy tone of the series. Gerard even gave an inflammatory interview to Starlog magazine, where he slated the show's producers and writers. Nevertheless, the series continued, reducing the parts of the other characters to give Buck more screen time. And, as with most star vehicles of this era, the more that this happened, the more Buck became more and more infallible and perfect, always knowing what to do, never concerned with doubts or fears, and becoming ever more boring in the process. Buck was in danger of becoming the most boring character in his own show. It's always a weird thing to me when actors shoot themselves in the foot. Certain actors never seem to know when they are onto a good thing. Buck Rogers could have had a lot of good characterisation about a man out of time who suddenly finds that society is overly reliant on computer technology and needs a man like him to allow them to, to step back and take a long, hard look at what they've become. In addition, there were already a good supporting cast, like Aaron Gray's Colonel Wilma Deering and Tim O'Connor's Dr Elias Hewer that could have been explored and deepened in ways that informed Buck, rather than Buck being perfect and dull and everything having to revolve around him. It also didn't help the show that executive producer Bruce Lansbury didn't seem to want to make a science fiction show. Still... For all the ups and downs, season one concluded in fine style with the two-hour telemovie Flight of the War Witch. Although there's some disagreement on that score. It was planned as a two-hour movie, but according to interviews, it was then decided at the last moment to air it as a two-part episode. But then it seemed to change once again back to a two-hour telemovie. Whatever the behind-the-scenes changes, Flight of the War, which did seem to originally err as a telefilm, and is presented as such on the DVD. Written by Rob Gilmer and William Megan from a story by David Chomsky and directed by Larry Stewart, this episode has a fur bit of money pumped into it, from new sets and FX, an ambitious idea and a great guest cast, all, I suspect due to Universal hoping to recoup some of the filthy lucre via backdoor channels, i.e. that of overseas theatrical release, as they had done with the pilot movie. Sadly, for whatever reason, this never happened. Perhaps there was no interest, perhaps the bottom had fallen out of that market, moving more to DTV, or perhaps people were tiring of TV shows being passed off as movies. My reason for thinking this is threefold. One, the opening teaser is much longer than usual, implying a little bit of padding for a 120-minute telly running time. Then, the opening titles are padded out to be longer than usual, with some pretty terrible editing of the music. The opening credits are followed by the interstitial credits, 
title of the episode, the guest cast, the production crew, etc. And all told, this covers a whopping four and a half minutes of screen time. Have a listen yourself. A glowing orb may hold the only hope of saving a peaceful planet from the evil war witch Serena, as Buck and Princess Adala are drawn through a vortex and into another universe. We're experiencing fantastic turbulence. I'm relying for all drive and directional factors on a computer disk developed from the orb. You're both familiar with the vortex theory. In the 20th century, it was called a black hole. The decoded chip is like a roadmap through the vortex. So this is an invitation from an unknown people who exist in another universe. Do you have any idea of the enormity of this moment, Kane? New worlds, new galaxies lie beyond the vortex, within reach of my fingertips. I must demand that you return the orb to the directorate. I'm afraid you're not in a position to demand a great deal of anything. Very shortly, we will be entering the vortex, and I will allow no one to interfere with this. We no longer have the means to wage a limited war. So you thought that as a Terran, I could fight your limited war for you? Two of the sharks passed through the force field and landed undetected. Pendar will be ours. I will make you my personal slave, and you will wish you had died. Still trapped in an alien universe, Buck, Tweaky, and Princess Ardala join forces to prevent the cruel witch Serena from enslaving the planet Pendar. I'm reading this ad cruiser closing on the defense shield. Fire! is 1987, and NASA launches the last of America's deep space probes. In a freak mishap, Ranger 3 and its pilot, Captain William Buck Rogers, are blown out of their trajectory into an orbit which freezes his life support systems and returns Buck Rogers to Earth 500 years later. That lousy edit. theatrical exhibition, something has to be over 75 minutes in length. If this was prepped with an overseas theatrical release in mind, the teaser would have been lopped off, the interstitial credits replaced, and presumably a more theatrical-looking opening credit sequence would have been created, leaving this hovering around the 90-minute mark. The other reason I think this may have been written with that market in mind, I will mention later. We open the episode with Buck in his latest conquest flying back to Earth after a night in the country. How this can be when the pilots established that everything outside of the domed protective area of the Earth Directorate was a radioactive wasteland is ignored. Continuity was not this show's strong point. They spot a big round gold football that has landed in Vasquez Rocks. 
They simply spot it. They don't pick it up on radar or see it enter Earth's atmosphere. They just happen to look out of the window and there it is. How convenient. Apparently, Vasquez Rocks, despite being located in California, is now 20 minutes southwest of New Chicago. As the crow flies, California is nearly 3,000 miles away from Chicago, but there is nothing to say that the 25th century's New Chicago is anywhere near the old Chicago. It could be located near Colorado or Utah, for all we know. Buck calls Dr. Hewer to tell him about it, and in the space of one minute, Hewer mentions all the troubles we've been having with those draconians lately. Twice. Like they felt they really needed to underscore all the troubles those pesky draconians have caused them lately. Learning what the ball is is deemed so important that even Dr. Hewer, who hasn't left his office in any other episode, goes with Buck, Wilma and the team to investigate. Have I mentioned how much trouble those draconians have been lately? There, a chip is expelled from the ball and they take it back to Dr. Hewer's office for analysis. All credit to the production team, this is a much better opening sequence than a lot of Buck Rogers episodes. The cast are playing this as a genuine mystery and are both awed and a little afraid by it and what it means. There's none of the usual campiness associated with the show in this scene, it's played for real. There's a three-part article in Starlog magazine devoted to the making of this episode. A partial reason for doing this show was I came across this whilst browsing through the issues on archive.org, and the producers did put a lot of effort into this opening. Interestingly, from the vantage of 2021, they were also aware of the show's lack of diversity and mentioned their desire to hire more women and people of colour for background characters. As such, it's nice to note that of the team that accompanied Buck to Vasquez Rocks, two are black men, and the doctor who assists him with his analysis of the ship is a woman. None of them have speaking parts, though, but baby steps, eh? The other reason I suspect this may have been planned as a theatrical release is the inclusion of Princess Adala and Kane, both of whom were the primary villains of the pilot, and thus the villains of the last theatrical release. Kane is now played by Michael Ansara, not Henry Silver, as in the pilot movie, but the producers probably thought no one would care. They're probably right. Pamela Hensley returns as Ardala, relishing playing the spoilt, pampered princess once again, a kind of post-apocalyptic Paris Hilton. She was one of the few actors of the era who could steal a scene with a swish of her hips. Ardala's boy toy, Tiger Man, blown up in the film by Buck, but, but not killed in the TV movie version of the pilot, because presumably because they probably didn't want Buck being a cold-blooded murderer. Well, not when he's not just blasting people out of the sky in his spaceship, anyway. Is replaced by Panther Man, so named by Ardala because he is... Brace yourselves. You're black. You're beautiful. Why don't you come over here and let me see your claws? Moving swiftly on, <clears throat> Dr. Hewer explains the plot. Dr. Diablos' staff has just decoded, and the results are staggering. What are they, though? You're both familiar with the vortex theory. Yes, it has to do with a hypothetical passage from one universe to another. That's assuming another exists. In the 20th century, it was called a black hole. Erroneously. The vortex theory is no longer a theory. It's a scientific fact. The decoded ship is like a roadmap through the vortex. Complex, dangerous. But by all our scientific frames of reference, it's navigable. So this is an invitation? From an unknown people who exist in another universe. The staff is reducing the decoded patterns to a computer disk compatible with Earth space vehicles. 
Which means we could plug it into any starfighter's navigation system and end up in an entirely new universe. Exactly. Theo, is there any clue as to who sent the orb? I'm afraid not, Colonel. But we may have a clue in the cryptograph. We found a legend that reads the equivalent of six letters of Earth's alphabet. P-E-N-D-A-R. Pendar. You heard of it? No, I haven't, Doc. Why would Book have heard of this? He's only just discovered it just as the director it has. Anyway, in that other universe of Pendar, is that... Why, yes it is! It's Julie Numa herself, channeling Ming the Merciless by terrorising a peaceful planet of Pendarians who can apparently beam in and out of scenes with an effect just like the transporter on Star Trek. Numa is, as ever, a delight, and yet she isn't camping it up anywhere near as much as Hensley, although she does keep saying things like pretty soon we'll penetrate the problematic Pendar like she's Gary Oldman in Friends. The orb was a message for help, a message Buck is only too happy to answer. Sadly, Ardala has spies on Earth who steal the orb. Still, they don't know what Hugh knows, and it will take time to decipher the message, something Hugh and co. have already done. Buck volunteers to journey through the Vortex immediately, giving them time to make contact with the Pendarans before Princess Ardala. One costuming note before we continue. The white Earth Directorate uniforms well, aren't very flattering on anyone who may be carrying a few extra pounds. Gil Gerard was slagged off quite a lot for looking fat, but he isn't. Not really. He's quite beefy, but he's not overweight. However, he looks a lot better in normal clothes, but that's pretty much true of everyone who wears the directorate uniforms. All the women in the cast look great, because the sexist nature of 70s Hollywood meant women are less likely to be allowed to gain a few pounds, but the liker is completely unflattering on the male members of the cast. Adalo's costumes are totally on point, though, and Hensley wears the heck out of them. Or not wears them, as the case may be. The story then gets a tad sentimental and syrupy, as a lot of US shows did. American TV writers wear their hearts on their sleeves a lot more than UK TV writers. It's hard to imagine a scene like this one that follows ever appearing on Blake 7. Uh, I pre-flighted your ship. I wanted to make sure everything was um, a-okay. Thank you, woman. Well, you didn't think I was going to let you go without saying goodbye, did you? No, I was hoping I'd see you before I left. Oh, you stop looking at me like that. I'll be fine. I know. Funny. All of a sudden, I don't know what to say. You don't have to say anything. No. No, I, I want to. You're very special. You've been more than a friend to me. And I, I've learned a lot about myself. About being able to express my feelings. How to care for someone. You've shown me a whole side of myself that I never knew existed. I finally felt like a woman. For the first time in my life. And I'd hate to think what I'd be like if it weren't for you. Well, you had a lot going for you from the beginning. You know, I didn't think I was going to like you when I first met you. But you have a way of growing on a person. And right now, I don't know what I would do if I lost you. 
gonna miss you. I'm gonna miss you too, woman. You're very special to me. Just to throw a curveball into the workload of the people making Book Rogers, NBC changed the ur date at the last moment, meaning various SFX shocks couldn't be completed on time. As such, three scenes were needed to pad out the runtime, including a farewell from Dr. Hewer and the clip you just heard with Wilma and Book. Erin Gray apparently collaborated with this scene, helping write the dialogue, and as such it's hard to criticise it for what may appear to be its inherent sexism. It's hard to imagine this playing like this if she were a male member of the military, but if Grey had no problem with it, then it's not for me to argue otherwise. Adala realises that whatever is happening, Buck is in the middle of it, and monitoring the channels, she deduces that Buck is headed through the vortex. Whatever Buck has, Adala must also have, and she orders Kane to make a navigation disc similar to Buck's, so they can follow. Buck's journey through the vortex is a Poundland version of the Space Wormhole from 2001 and Star Trek The Motion Picture, intentionally so, according to the Starlog article. The attempts to make a truly alien universe and people is appreciated, with Adala wondering if beings from another universe will even look like us. Sadly, this is all undone by something out of the control of the producers. Ultimately, they still have to use actors from Earth. There are some lines about how the Pendarans are only appearing as humans to make life easier for Buck and Co, so fair play for at least paying lip service to more alien life forms. Of course, Hewer and Wilma head to Adala's spaceship to reprimand her for stealing the orb, but Adela isn't interested and orders Kane to take them into the vortex. Adala is on dangerous ground here, as Hewer is totally right to call her on it. She's stolen a foreign power's property and then held that same foreign power's representatives against their will. Hewer is the head of the Earth Directorate, and this is pretty much an act of war. Dr. Hewer always seemed to have a wide latitude with his remit, and the series never made clear if he was elected or if he answered to a president or other world leader. In fact, the series never established if there was a rest of the world. Adala's sense of entitlement is on full show in this episode, and it's especially funny that she complains that she wasn't warned about how bumpy the ride would be, a ride she wasn't even invited on. Of course, this is all setting up Adala's meeting with Zarina, Julie Newmar's character, a truly evil princess in comparison to Adala's mask of pretense. Throughout this series, we've seen that Adala is a fake bad girl. She's really just misunderstood. Buck and Adala are asked to fight Zarina for the Pendarans, and whilst Buck is willing, Adala is all... Oh, really now, this whole thing's becoming an incredible bore. Come along, Kane, we're leaving immediately. Buck, would you like to have a drink before we leave? No, Princess, I'll take a rain check. Yes, you always do. Without the help of Ardala and the Draconian forces, though, Buck feels they don't have a chance, and pleads with the Princess to help. Still, I can see Ardala's point. The orb led them to Pendar to fight war for them, but it didn't give them a way back. That's perilously close to kidnapping, and it's not really that different from what Ardala just did with Hewer. Granted, Ardala came uninvited, but she's stuck here now like they are. Buck is press-ganged into working on Ardala to get her to join in after the pouting princess storms off in a huff. 
But Rogers, at least in its first season, managed to walk the tightrope of pulpy science fiction and campy comedy with aplomb. And Gil Gerard's earnestness works well when he's playing opposite someone like Hensley, who is camping it up with the best of them. It also seems like Ardala gets what she wants in this episode by finally bedding our out-of-time hero. Unlike in other episodes, like Ardala Returns or Escape from Wedded Bliss, Book has no get-out clause here. He's pretty much got to do what she wants if he wants her help. And because Book is clearly the best lay in the galaxy, Ardala agrees to help. On her own terms, of course. Zarena's strategy will be to send fighter units in first, then follow with the cruiser. The Terran and Dracodian forces combined could destroy her space fleet, but we must find a way to repair the shield computer elements. Now, hold on a minute. The princess is a very stubborn lady. I just spoke to her this morning and... and made a very convincing argument for me to commit my forces to save the Pindarans. I just can't seem to say no to Captain Rogers. Impeccable timing, princess. Oh, am I unfashionably early or unforgivably late? The Zad just stormed the computer. Without it, we are helpless. You were helpless with it, dear. Uh, you were saying, sir, that the key is to repair the computer elements. And to rescue Codus. If we can get him back to Pendar to build a new program for the defense shield... I have a better idea. Zarina is, after all, a woman not unlike myself. She is... powerful, intelligent. She would anticipate these moves. You won't get Cotus out of there. Not alive. That's a chance we're going to have to take. Not necessarily, Captain. A little woman-to-woman -woman confrontation might be just a thing right now. Princess, we know nothing about this woman. Silence, Kane. It's too dangerous. Right now, what we need to worry about is getting that defense shield mended. Well, I wasn't thinking of discussing sunsets of a synod, Captain. Ardala portrays Book to Zarina. Surprising nobody, but Zarina and Ardala don't really get along which was as nice a bit of characterization as it was unsurprising. Of course, Ardala doesn't get along with someone who doesn't kowtow to her or give her what she wants. They even get a, we're not that different, you and I moment, which is a cliche I could really do without ever seeing again. In your universe, they call you a princess? Yes. In mine, we would call you a child, an arrogant, demanding child. Do you really think you can come to me with a proposition and assume that I need or want your help? Ardala. <laughs> oh, pardon me, princess. You said we understood each other. You could not be more wrong. Just a minute, Serena. I understand you, your petty quest for bits of power, your need to conquer, your desires. But you don't see me. You're not that different from me. In one very important way, I've earned my position, Ardala. You've been given yours. I am a woman. And you are just a little Girl. How dare you speak to me that way? I am the Princess Ardala. You are excused. Take her away. Ardala isn't having any of this, and when push comes to shove, she'll save her own ass. If that means helping Book, 
then that's what she'll do. These, is, these are actually really quite good character moments and a good payoff to the overall first season story arc, if we can call it such, when Adala realises that when she stops being a pampered mean girl and steps up to the plate to help Buck, he actually likes her. Wilma even gets a moment with Kane, where, when not in opposition, she sees he's actually a damn good military leader. Inadvertently, the show was wrapping up season-long loose ends with this hint that Draconia and Earth, having worked together, may make some kind of peace. Which does kind of, almost sort of, play into the second season theme if you squint a little bit. The action then hots up, with Draconia and the Earthers taking on Zarina and her forces for the good of Pendar. It's the old, the enemy of my enemy is my friend plot, but it's tried and true and works well. There's even a moment of true self-reflexive wit when Ardala interrupts Kane's oratory just because she's bored. Connect me to my commander. Of course. Warriors of Draconia, this is your supreme commander. Addressing you on the eve of the most important military engagement in our history. We are here in an unknown universe, fighting a strange foe with unaccustomed allies. I will expect no less from you than I would give myself. Every shred of raw courage, every single iota. Kane. Princess. Quiet, Kane. Yes, Princess. Convey my best wishes to the squadrons and launch them into space immediately. I don't want them to be late for the war. Yes, Your Highness. He would talk the Zads to death. The final battle is fine if a tad anticlimactic, although notable for actually killing Zarina. This show was normally a little less bloodthirsty than that. All that's left is the wrap-up, and for Buck and Co. to journey back through the vortex to their own galaxy, which was a tad quick and anticlimactic, given the rigmarole it was to get, though. It's also left to the Pendaren's robot to speak for us all when it asks... What does BTBT mean? As usual for Buck, numerous props and sets are repurposed from Battlestar Galactica, with the latter's Landram being redesigned and painted for the Directorate's buggy, the Galactica shuttlecraft makes yet another appearance, the computer control room is the one seen on the Galactica, and various computer banks dotted around the set look like ones from the Galactica's main bridge. Flight of the War, which works for a number of reasons, one of which is, coincidentally, the third and final reason I think this was planned as a possible theatrical release. It's actually a science fiction story. It's handled like the old serials or pulps, but it's still a proper sci-fi idea. This was rarer than you'd think in a show called Book Rogers in the 25th century, given that executive producer Bruce Lansbury is quoted as saying he tried to keep the show as normal and grounded as possible. Now, normal and grounded is fine for something like Cagney and Lacey or Simon and Simon, but if I'm tuning into a show called Book Rogers, then I want it to have some science fiction in it. This episode works on that level. It's high concept, it looks pretty good, it walks that line between pulpy sci-fi and campy fun exceptionally well. That's quite hard to pull off, especially nowadays where it's seen as stupid. One only has to look at Wonder Woman 84 to see that it's more difficult to capture this tone than you may think. Sadly, it could have been better though. 
As mentioned, post-production lost four weeks, which not only affected the FX, but such niceties as an original score. Most of the episode is tracked from music written from prior episodes. As is par for the course in the later episodes, Bucky is the most boring character. Even by his standards, he doesn't do very much. He just does a lot of standing around. Not a lot happens until he has to explode into action when required. Even his one-liners, when they appear, are groan-inducing. And he doesn't even have many good scenes with Tweaky. Hewer gets out of the directorate for once, and his diplomatic skills are put to good use. But Wilmer is once again sidelined, which is a shame. It's the bad guys who have the most fun, though. Hensley and Numa are exceptionally good value, as is Ansara, who plays off Hensley with the practised ease of a man who's had to put up with the petulant princess all of her life. Sadly, this would be the last hurrah for Buck as pulpy fun. When he returned for his second season, he'd be retooled and sent out into space in search of Earth's 13th colony. Surprisingly, that didn't lead to a crossover with Battlestar Galactica. Such a shame. In its first season, at least, Buck was an enormously watchable and entertaining, albeit dumb, show. In its second, it committed the cardinal sin. It was boring. As with the opening credits, the end credits are again extended and badly edited, which is weird, as they have a much longer version of this song in the library. We'll close out with Kip Lennon. No relation. Enjoy. Far beyond this world I've known Far beyond my time What kind of world am I going to find? Will it be real or just all in my mind? What am I? Who am I? What will I be? Where am I going and what will I see? an email and it's from Nathaniel Wayne the spidey list hey there Andy hey there Nathaniel so yeah I've been out of touch for a while bit of a crazy year you may have heard I think I've heard something about that I'll skip the personal life updates because that seems more appropriate to my eventual reply to the Christmas episode of Hey Kids Comics plus I've obviously got a big window of time to reply to that one Funnily enough, a ranking of the Spider-Man films is one of the things I haven't gotten around to yet over on the Council of Geeks YouTube channel. I hope you didn't think you'd get away without an awkwardly inserted plug. <laughs> is your word in there deliberately like that, or is that just, just me? Ah, it doesn't matter. But I'd say our ranking is pretty comparable. Well, aside from the fact that there's no way I'm taking the time to watch the repackaged TV episodes. Well, if you're not going to take the time to do that, why do any of it? 
You know, you, you throw yourself in and you look at the shit as well as the good stuff. Otherwise, where's the fun? <laughs> uh, the own major exception. You'd never see me placing Spider-Man over Spider-Man 2. I certainly get that Spider-Man is more significant in its place in superhero film history, but I'm hard-pressed to think of anything that Spider-Man 2 doesn't do better. The action is better. The villain is better. This is the closest this version of MJ ever came to working. J.K. Simmons gets more scenery to chew. Even the score lands better. Or maybe I just got nostalgic for it by the second one. Really, the only thing the first one has over this is the perfect execution of Uncle Ben. Wow, I could have worded that better. And maybe that's the difference. If one connects more with the material that the first film is drawing from, high school, origin, etc., then I suppose that's as good a reason as any to like it better. See, in that entire paragraph, Nathaniel, you basically came around to seeing why I rank it above Spider-Man 2. See, here's the thing. I don't know if the lovely listeners have ever really noticed, but my Bible of comic books in general, but Spider-Man in particular, is those first 38 issues and two annuals. Basically, the Lee Ditko run. I think they are some of the finest, most innovative, most interested, most during superhero comics ever put to page. Specifically, for the era in which they were created. Now, if you look at the other stuff that was being published at the time, and you look at the the competition that Marvel was up against at the time, even Marvel weren't putting out a book as psychologically interesting, as challenging in terms of having a lead character who wasn't always perfect or likable, and as innovative as constantly putting that character in conflict with himself as Spider-Man. There was nothing else like it on the stands then. And it's easy now to be slightly sniffy and dismissive, which some millennials are, of the work that was produced in the 60s. But I think that stuff held up well into the 80s and 90s. I really do. It's not as melodramatic or cheesy as some of the 90s stuff. The artwork by Ditko is still his career best. It's still his career highlight. And it's it stands career best, I think, as a plotter. because as a Sorry, as a scripter. Because Ditko's plots were tight, man. Really, really tight. Especially as you got into starting around issue 10 or 11, where Ditko was clearly taken over with the majority of the plotting. I am not taken away from the work Lee did with Jack Kirby. It is innovative. It is challenging. It is magnificent cosmic stuff. But Kirby's plotting was far more loosey-goosey than Ditko's. And I think that the Ditko era is everything that superhero comics of that point aspired to be, but weren't. Look at what DC was doing at the time. It was it was fur for, it was kiddie fur. It was for six to eight years old. There is nothing challenging or innovative. It's all pretty staid and boring and squirchined. And, and, you know, there's an appeal to it on a certain level. But what Stan was doing and Steve was doing was a quantum leap forward from what everyone else was doing in the comics industry at that time who was working in that particular genre. And that is why I do place the first one above the second one. Because like you say... 
I think the early high school stuff is the best that strip's ever got. I think the idea of being Spider-Man being a responsibility for Peter Parker, being, but being one that constantly gets in the way of his life, it's it's that kind of heightened melodrama that Buffy mined so well in its first three seasons. And I don't think it's a coincidence that Buffy isn't as good after that third season finale where she graduates high school. It's there's something about the high school milieu, the melodrama, the heightened emotions of that period. It's also a period of life that every single one of us goes through that we can relate to. But after high school, we all go off in different directions. Some people go to college, some people go straight into work, etc., etc. But high school is something we can all understand. And those of us that remember what being that age felt like can relate to those kind of stories no matter how old we are. This is why I don't get people when they constantly say, well, why don't you just make Spider-Man 30? We've done the high school stuff. What's different about him when he's 30? In fact, if he's 30 and he's still being Spider-Man and still having the same issues and problems and arrested development, then that is arguably very uninteresting because at that point he's become a character who is, like I say, he's just constantly in a state of perpetual teenagehood. And there's no difference to him from being the Flash. You know, the Flash, to me, those Silver Age Flash stories that I've read in the omnibuses, which are very fun, they're, they're probably the most fun DC comics of the Silver Age to read, because there's just a lot of really crazy ideas in there, and a lot of science fiction implausibility, and a lot of fun, and, and all that stuff. But without the teenageness, without the melodrama, the heightened reality that comes with being a teenager, a 30-year-old Peter Parker is still a Spider-Man, he's just the Flash. And the Flash was doing that better. Do you know what I mean? And I think what made Peter Parker different, and what Miles Morales is tapping into now with a new generation of people, of readers, is that heightened reality of high school. And my point, I do have one, is that the first one captures that better than I ever thought a film of Spider-Man ever would. Because prior to that, well, we'd only really had the TV show, but even the cartoons primarily focused on him as high school or older. No one ever went back to the high school milieu and did that as, as, as genuinely heartfelt as the Lee Ditko stuff. And that's why I always rank it above the second one. It's not that I think the second one is bad by any means at all. But I do think the second one pales in comparison to the comics. In the sense that the Lee Ramita era shows a Peter Parker who's growing and developing and changing. And that change of supporting characters, again, incredibly during for the time. You know, Superman had had the same supporting cast for 40 years at that point, more or less. 30 years. And so had Batman. I mean, every now and again, you know, they bring Alfred in or get rid of Alfred and bring Alfred back and all that stuff. But the status quo pretty much remained the same. And Peter Parker left high school and left people behind. You know, Liz Allen went away. Betty Brandt went away. And he met a new group of people. And that's not something they follow through with in the film. They just kind of throw Flash Thompson away. And Harry Osborn's been there from the beginning. And there's no Gwen until the third one. And it's... a that's why I'm always a little bit iffy on the second one, because it doesn't really get the Peter Parker goes to college milieu quite right for me. I mean, it works for that series of films. And obviously, as a comic book fan, I'm in the minority in terms of that audience. And I think an awful lot of the people who think the second one is better 
either did not grow up like I did with the Lee Ditko stuff because it was being republished every month in Marvel Tales. So there's a there's an entire generation of my age group, hi Chris Franklin, um, who grew up reading that stuff monthly as the the audience twenty years earlier. So it affected a whole new generation in that level. So to see that stuff put on film as faithfully as it was at the time was a remarkable feeling and a remarkable sensation and a remarkable validation of our love of that character. And that's why I would always rate the first Spider-Man over the second one. Now, obviously, I think the new ones are doing a great job of updating that high school scenario for the modern generation. I don't like that they've basically ripped off the Miles Morales comics to do it because there's there's a certain amount of stuff with the Tom Holland ones that I really think they're not doing stuff because the Raimi movies did it. And I think just because the Raimi movies did it isn't a good enough reason for you not to do it if you've got a different take on it. But certainly a, a lot of the high school stuff in the Tom Holland ones are more interesting to me because they're actually playing all that stuff for real and for comedy and for, for drama and they're doing a very good job of updating that. And without it feeling like just a rip-off of the ultimate Spider-Man, which is kind of what the Andrew Garfield movies felt like. And I never felt, for all of Bendis' vaunted awards and appeal, I never felt he nailed the high school stuff as realistically as Leon Ditko did. Which is, you know, possibly my age. There may be some people who grew up with those ultimate Spider-Man comics who felt that that high school milieu was, was perfect. I don't know. I can only speak from my point of view. But obviously from the time that that film landed, we didn't have the Marvel Universe. We'd only had the Superman series, which had spiralled down the sink. We'd had the Batman films, which again had gone into the crapper. And we'd had the first X-Men movie, which I thought was two-thirds a good pilot movie for a TV show. And then a third act that just plain sucked. Nothing has changed really in the superhero movie, as it Wonder Woman Two, first two thirds absolutely brilliant, third act that sucks, so nothing's changed though. But that's why I ranked the first one above the second one. Well, that was a bit long-winded, wasn't it? Anyway, this will actually be a short one by my standards, continues Nathaniel, and I can't promise you this will restart regular correspondence, but the reasons for that for another time, I suppose. Great to hear your ranking. Stay safe. Geekly yours, Nathaniel Wayne. You don't have to communicate regularly as long as you stay in touch on Facebook or whatever. I still watch your videos on YouTube on Council of Geeks because, as I've said before, you're not a Doctor Who YouTube dickhead. So, you know, as long as you're still out there and you're still okay, that's fine. That about wraps it up for this time. Thank you very much for, for joining me. If you want to be like Nathaniel, name, name email in heykidscomics at virginmedia.com and I'll see you all again real soon. It is all going to be okay as we go into the third lockdown. The third one's never as good, is it? Third one's never any fun, you know. Spider-Man 3, Karate Kid 3. You know, Goldfinger was good, I suppose. Goldfinger's a good third movie. Anyway, so maybe that's another show, ranking the three calls. You know, which three calls were good? Return of the King, there's another one. Alright, uh, take care, see you soon. Hopefully, it is all gonna be okay. Uh, and I'll be back. Goodbye.